0: Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Tom Buter. I'm the uh, Discipleship and Congregational Care Pastor here at New Covenant Church. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Chronicles 13. 2 Chronicles 13. We'll be continuing in somewhat of a mini series of the Kings of Judah. Join me as we read from God's Word. Second Chronicles 13, starting in verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now, there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him, with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zamariah, that is, in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons, by a covenant of salt. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord and the hand of the sons of David? Because you are a great multitude, and have the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you for gods? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and the Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Jeroboam had set an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them, priests And they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Now the men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them down with great force, so there fell slain of Israel five hundred thousand chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed, because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, and Jeshanah with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. But Abijah grew mighty, and he took fourteen wives, and had twenty-two sons, and sixteen daughters." The rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the story of the prophet Iddo. Let's pray. O Lord, we have read your word. We have sung your praises. We have made vows. You have called us here to this place. We have heard you speak in your word. Now, O Lord, give us ears to hear as you would speak through the preaching of your word. Give us eyes to see, illumine our minds that we would not be in darkness, but would walk in the light as you are in the light, for by your light do we see light. We give you thanks for your word, O Lord, and we pray that you would have our hearts to be ready to receive it eagerly and with gladness. Help us, O Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. On June 18, 1940, just a month after becoming Prime Minister in the dark days of World War II, Winston Churchill delivered one of his most famous speeches to Parliament. France had just surrendered and Britain was alone. The Battle of France was over and the Battle of Britain was about to begin. Winning could save civilization, is what he said. Losing, well, here is his quote. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Abijah is a bad king. But this, Second Chronicles 13, is his finest hour. What do you do when you have a bad king? I talked about Rehoboam just a month ago. He was a bad king. He's mentioned here. Abijah, when you look at the uh, parallel passage in 1 Kings 15, it doesn't have much to say about him. His reign is only three years long. And it just tells us that his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. So when you have a bad king, what do you pray for? What do you do? The king is not set on following the Lord. Do you pray for a better king? Do you try to set up a republic? In 2 Chronicles 13, we see a not good king uh, who's a less than ideal king, but we see him in his finest hour as he would uh, follow the Lord and the Lord would use him in this this one day. And so as we have these stories in Kings and we have repetition in Chronicles, uh, we get usually a better version of the person in Chronicles. It's not because these accounts are contradicting each other. It's because they've got a different purpose in communicating uh, who these men are and how the Lord used them. Kings is focused on how the kings led the people to sin and how they ended up in exile. Chronicles is focused on now that we're out of exile and we look back on our history, why did we get out? It's because of repentance. It's because of the grace of God. It's because even with bad kings, they had their finest hour. The Lord had a purpose in his, in his sovereign will so we even see an example of grace and truth together. John 1.17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, Abijah is not a king whose heart is wholly set on the Lord. But the Lord graciously doesn't really talk about that here. He just says, let me tell you about Abijah's finest hour. The Lord is giving us an example of speaking graciously about someone. And so now we can take a look at how the Lord used Abijah and how he speaks of him graciously and uses him uh, for God's people as uh, a bad king on his best day. So I have three points for us to unpack in this text. Uh, The speaker, we're going to talk about who Abijah is as the speaker. The speech, what he said, and the shouting match, which is the battle at the end. So the speaker, the speech and the shouting match. First, the speaker. Abijah is the son of Rehoboam. That's established here. So we talked about Rehoboam, the kingdom divided under Rehoboam. He, uh, as it's described here, he was young and irresolute and could not withstand uh, rebellious men who opposed him. It's interesting that the text says that he was young when he was 41 years old when he became king. So I think it's a condition of age not really being a number, but more being a state of mind. It also mentions uh, Abijah's mother, Micaiah, and so she's an Israelite. So he's different than his father and that he's not the son of an Ammonite, not the son of a foreigner. Uh, So there seems to be something a little better going on here, that uh, his father actually um, married somebody that he was supposed to. Uh, The kings of Judah's mothers are always listed. It's something that sets them apart. The kings of Israel, as they're contrasted, their mothers are not mentioned unless they're very, very bad people, like Jezebel. So there's a contrast here between Israel and Judah. Uh, things about Abijah, he's, uh, we can't tell if he's the oldest son, but he definitely is the oldest son of the favorite wife, which is also a theme that we see uh, with David and Bathsheba, with Solomon choosing Rehoboam, with Rehoboam choosing Abijah. It chooses the oldest son of the favorite wife, um, So, uh, we can see this theme for a few generations. His reign is a short reign. He only reigns three years. uh, So, that's why the account in Kings is just a paragraph. uh, And surprisingly, we get a few paragraphs in uh, 2 Chronicles 13. So, we're not told the circumstances of his death. The text just moves on. Those details aren't necessary for us. But we are told the circumstances of... His finest hour. And his finest hour comes in the context of a war. What Israel is facing more or less is a protracted civil war. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom really are one people divided by ten tribes and two tribes. Rehoboam spent much of his reign, which was 17 years long, fighting Jeroboam, trying to seek back control over the, the rebellious ten tribes even though this split was a thing from the Lord, as we're told uh, in chapter 10. Abijah takes up the mantle of his father and continues in this war. He goes to war with Jeroboam, as it's described for us, uh, starting in verse 3. So uh, 1 Kings 15 tells us that Abijah was like his father, a king who did not set his heart on the Lord, but uh, we have a contrast here with this great speech. Uh, and how uh, we get what Paul Harvey would say is the rest of the story. Um, Another note about this speaker is, uh, even though he's not wholly devoted to the Lord, uh, and yet he cannot speak without the help of the Lord. And this is a little bit of a conundrum. How can one who is not regenerate speak so eloquently about the things of God? He's not a false teacher who's clothing himself as one of the sheep, he is simply a king of God's people who's a member of the Visible Covenant community, Uh, but he's just not a good king. And so uh, it was interesting to watch the coronation even yesterday uh, and see King Charles III crowned as the king of Great Britain and uh, go through uh, a liturgy, more or less. Uh, Lots of scripture was read. There were prayers. It was very uh, mostly traditional Christian, obviously, with uh, a few exceptions. Um, but there were readings from the Scriptures. There was a singing of, um, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. There were oaths. Uh, the, this was seen as putting a Christian king on a throne that Jesus Christ has established. That was very explicit in the coronation ceremony. And yet, I think we would be uh, foolish to think that it's just this wonderful, perfect Christian king who's going to reign in such a godly way over uh, a kingdom that is, uh, by all accounts, very, very far from Christ uh, in its living and in its, uh, its worshipping. Um, Abijah may be similar. He knows the right things to say because he knows the kingdom that he rules, but his heart may not necessarily be in it. Uh, so we have a similar person in, um, in Numbers, uh, Balaam the mysterious prophet who is paid to curse God's people, and yet he can't curse them. Every time he tries to curse God's people, the Spirit of God makes him bless God's people over and over again. He's a very uh, strange character, uh, and yet the Lord uses him to bless his people in his attempts to curse them. The Lord speaks through him even though he's not a godly man. And so, what we get as an example with these kings or with someone like Balaam and others, is we get an example of God works through His ways, uh, and even we can be thankful that He doesn't work in the same way every time, that uh, sometimes His solutions to our trouble are strange uh, at, at, uh, at best. And so, it's nice that we don't come into a situation where uh, whatever the trouble might be, uh, maybe you're facing. Anxiety, and the Lord comes to you. He's like, I've got the perfect solution. Here's this guy. He's handsome. He's successful. He'll give you confidence. And then you're facing um, <clears throat> temptation to sin. He's like, Well, there's this guy. He can help you. He's handsome. He's successful. He'll give you confidence. It's not the same solution, no matter what you're facing. Yes, our solution is Christ, but at the same time, the Lord is showing us Christ uh, in His Word, and yet He's showing us Christ in, in different ways by speaking through people that we would not think that the Lord would speak through in the Scriptures, speaking through Balaam, speaking through even Abijah. And so, the Lord uh, knows what He's up to. God's solution is always Jesus, yes, but often the circumstances in which He uh, points us to Jesus are, uh, are the real lesson. And so, In this account, God's solution to Judah's predicament is to have an unrighteous king pray a righteous prayer. If God hears the prayers of an unrighteous king, how much more will he listen to the prayers of his righteous sons and daughters? Now, what was this prayer? We've talked about the speaker. Now, let's talk about the speech. This is our second point. We'll look at the prayer. Verse 3 Speaks about the armies of Judah and Israel being arrayed for a battle. And so, upon reading this, you may have noticed how large the armies are 400,000 men, 800,000 men, there's going to be 500,000 casualties. Uh, we might question how, I mean, those are armies bigger than some of the armies that took the battlefield in uh, the Civil War. I mean, the, the, thousands of years later, it seems like these armies are astronomically large. Well, that would be the simplest way to look at it. Uh, If that's an issue for you, there's other ways to think about these numbers representing perhaps a selection of the best men out of a population of 400,000, as ten tribes would obviously be much larger than two tribes. Um, uh, It also could be uh, just that these armies are that large. And so Abijah is a a dutiful king. Uh, He leads his army, and as any great-grandson of David would be he would be like David having the blood of a warrior coursing through his veins. Kings lead armies. It's what they do. Kings also represent, represent God's people when they speak. So Abijah speaks for the covenant people against those who have forsaken the covenant. And so his speech addresses three reasons why these armies are gathered today. The Three reasons are you are rebels. It's a really great way to start winning people's favor. As they say, you're the rebels, we're the good guys. You are rebels not just because you have rebelled against my father, uh, but you, it's in your nature to be rebels. It's what you've inherited. It's just what you do. You rebel. Uh, yes, my father was not the man for the job for ruling you, but perhaps I am. But your rebelling is still a rebelling against God's Chosen house, the house of David, uh, as he makes the point in verse five. The second reason, so first, is your idol- uh, your uh, your rebels. The second reason is you are idolaters. He mentions this several times, talking about the golden calves. You're idolaters. You worship golden calves. You don't even worship the living God. It's not that you've just rebelled against God's chosen house for ruling you. You've also turned your back on God. And you don't, uh, you, you explicitly worship things that he's told you not to worship. Uh, and third, you are rejectors of the true worship of God. So even in your turning to idols, your worship doesn't even look a smidgen like godly worship. And he goes into great detail. It's kind of a, worthy of asking some questions about the text. Why so much detail about worship? Well, that's. Part of what uh, obeying and and following a covenant God looks like is is worshiping Him first and foremost, not just blind obedience, but delighting in Him and worshiping Him as He would want to be worshiped. So, Abijah goes into this great detail. He talks about lamps, priests, Levites, the sons of Aaron, talks about ordination, uh, talking about uh, sacrifices and rhythms, time, places, so I, I can't help but Abijah taking the opportunity before the battle as these armies are arrayed against each other, taking the opportunity to do a little politicking, maybe to sway some of the men of Israel to his side as he stands before them as a true son of David, and he says, hear me, maybe we don't want to fight this battle, maybe you want to just listen to what I have to say. And he tries to, the, the, calling them rebels maybe isn't the, the best opening tact, but uh, he tries to sway what he th- sees as his subjects, whom God has gave, given to his family to rule and lead, to sway them back. And I can imagine some older men in the, uh, in the crowd of the, uh, the, the battle lines who uh, would have uh, remembered 17 years ago uh, what it was like to uh, be under under this house and this kingdom. They're standing there with their spear and their shield, and they're hearing this king call them back in a way, uh, tugging at nostalgia uh, with worship of all things. Uh, and I can even imagine some of those Israelite men as they're opposing this king, some of them may, uh, may be ignoring it, but others might be, might be pulled a little bit and say, I remember when we used to go to Jerusalem. I remember what it smelled like. smell those sacrifices because it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord and it was a pleasing aroma to us. I remember what it was like to to sing the Psalms of Ascent as we went up to Jerusalem. Uh, I remember uh, being with God's covenant people and renewing the covenant together in the place that He had set with the priests that He had set aside for this. And uh, even to be perhaps pulled or only to have their their hearts hardened as they might flip a switch and say you know i like the way we do it now i like that um we got two locations to worship at dan and bethel that uh we don't you know there's there's just more options uh it's not just jerusalem only Uh, i also like it that um the priests you know that was a little exclusive only levites and really only the sons of aaron I kind of like it that we've opened up the priesthood to, to more, you know, Reubenites and Gadites that are, you know, aspiring young men who want to be priests, and they're not being cut off from that as long as they've got a bull or a few rams to, to bring for a, for a payment to the king. really like what Jeroboam's done with some of the reforms to open things up. And even like that I can worship a golden calf that I can see, and it's just, it's just a little easier for me, a little more convenient. Uh, as we see that... Uh, the, all of the worship has been turned on its head. And so these are rebels, uh, they're idolaters, and they are false worshipers. Everything about their worship is, is turned against God. And so if we think about our own worship, thinking about this text, that the Lord still calls us to worship. Now, we don't do it with sacrifices. There's no lamps here. Uh, we don't there's not really a lot of smells. We just try to make sure it's pretty neutral and it smells good. So if it doesn't smell good, let somebody know, please. Um, there are some visible things, bread and wine, but the worship that we're called to is still, it's not Jerusalem, but it's its still this place. Uh, and the place is where the people of God are. And that's where the Lord's calling us to worship. It's where His people are. And to get here today, I know for... Some of you, it's hard Uh, physically. uh, I don't even know all that goes into your morning routine to make it actually happen. Uh, It can be hard emotionally, it can be hard spiritually. Uh, We face a spiritual warfare. The devil doesn't want you here. The devil doesn't want you here worshiping the triune God in spirit and in truth. It's logistically hard. It's hard for a lot of reasons. So if you're here today, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad. You've endured even that test of gathering with God's people to say, I was glad when we went up to the house of the Lord to worship. And so Abijah is calling the Israelites to worship. The Lord in His Word is calling you to worship. The Lord is still doing things. He's working through imperfect men, and He's working through those He's called. He's also working through songs, readings, prayers, even preaching. He promises to bless His people, to minister to your souls. He promises to feed you and build you up. Do you still believe that He's actively working to keep His promises? Do you still believe, as you come here this morning, that there's some nugget of the gospel that the Holy Spirit wants to give you today and press upon your heart? So Abijah's speech is confidently filled with the sense that God is keeping His promises to bless those who hear and do His word. And he also makes promises to cut off those who hear and disobey. Ignorance is bliss, and knowledge can be damnation. And so Abijah speaks to the people of Israel, speaks to the men of Israel arrayed for battle against him and said, you have forsaken all of the means that God has given for fellowship. You've forsaken his priests who teach you his law, his kings who are to lead you in righteousness, his holy hill where he said, worship me there. There is nothing that you have not forsaken. You have no means to worship the living God. You outnumber us two to one, and you are the ones who are in a dire situation. Because as is so often described, particularly in the Old Testament, when it describes these physical things, uh, the number of troops, the way the battle is set up, it's a very physical description of what's going on, but it's a spiritual reality that's being described as... The men of Israel outnumber the men of Judah, but as he says, it's the men of Israel who are the ones who are in trouble, for they are the ones who are opposing God. And so he's warning them, you don't want to fight this battle because you cannot succeed. How often would a a general turn away from a battle in which he has two to one odds of winning? He outnumbers his opponent two to one. He said, you've rejected a bad king, my father, you've exchanged him for a worse king, Jeroboam. Yeah, you got rid of Rehoboam, but what has Jeroboam done? Yeah, he's changed the tax code in your favor, but he's taken away uh, true worship. He's set up Id- idols. He's removed the priests. You have lost so much as you face the, not the yoke of my father's taxation, but the yoke of Jeroboam's spiritual oppression, which makes him a king worthy of having a millstone tied around his neck because he led the children of God to sin so wickedly. And so you outnumber us two to one, but you cannot succeed. Why? Because it is the nature of God. It is his nature for him to keep his promises. And look at verse 5. What has he promised? Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? The phrase covenant of salt uh, tripped me up a little bit this week as I was studying it because I'm like, I, I know the covenant with Adam, I know the covenant with Noah, I know the covenant with Abraham, um, Moses, David, even the new covenant. I mean, there's a lot of covenants in the Bible, but I haven't heard about the covenant of salt. And no, there's no covenant of pepper to go with it. But the covenant of salt, uh, it's an interesting phrase, and it actually shows up one other time in the Bible, in Numbers 18:19. It talks about the covenant of salt as it's talking about sacrifices. And then this language of the salt of the covenant is in Leviticus 2, 13, as it says that the sacrifices need to be offered with salt. It's the salt of the covenant. Well, why? Uh, Sometimes the littlest details will send you off on the longest rabbit trails. But the salt and the sacrifices, the salt is for preserving meat. They didn't have fridges and freezers uh, during these days, so how did they save the meat? Well, they salted it. Uh, And that allowed it to be preserved, to be perpetual, to last. So, the salt of the covenant indicates it's even just a physical sign as they would put the salt on the sacrifice that this covenant is forever. And so, this is the covenant, verse 5, that the Lord has made with the house of David. It's a covenant of salt. It's a covenant forever. And so, God's promises are going to be kept, and Israel is not going to succeed uh, no matter what the outcome of this battle is going to look like, Abijah knows the house of David will reign over Judah forever. And so his speech is his finest hour. And as Abijah appeals to the God who keeps covenant forever, he reminds the Israelites of another detail, not just that the salt of the covenant is a covenant forever, but he also reminds them of who is with him on the battlefield, not just his army that's half the size of theirs. But the priests whom they have forsaken and they have removed from their land, those priests are with him and they have their trumpets. He's brought the Jerusalem brass to come perform from the battlefield. And they're going to blare the trumpets just like they did uh, at, um, at Jericho with Joshua. When Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, the priests had their trumpets now those trumpets don't blow against the Canaanites in the walls of Jericho. Those trumpets are going to blow against the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And so his speech was his finest hour, but his speech is not what actually wins the battle. That brings us to our third point. We've looked at the speaker, we've looked at the speech, now we can look at the shouting match. Jeroboam now gets his chance to respond, and he doesn't say anything. He responds by just going to battle. He's gonna fight, so he organizes his troops. I almost imagine the scene being Abijah like a, a classic TV villain who says, the world will soon be mine, as he monologues about his success. And meanwhile, Jeroboam's sending half of his army around the back door. And so, Abijah is speaking, and Jeroboam's getting his army prepared, and he's got him front and back surrounded. And his actions tell us Everything he we need to know about him. Jeroboam doesn't listen. He was warned he didn't listen, and so he's not going to succeed. He pulls out the I can't tell if it's the oldest battle tactic or the second oldest battle tactic in the history of warfare. The oldest might just be charge. Go head on. Uh, but it's it's the ambush. And he pulls out this tactic, he arrays his troops. And he's trying to take the initiative with his superior numbers and dictate how this battle is going to be fought. He sees himself as being in control. Uh, And yet uh, he can put an army that's equal to Judas eyes in front and one that's equal behind them. And so he has men to spare, but as you would maybe take a moment to study military history, you can see that Robert E. Lee made his, pretty much his entire military career off of defeating armies that were bigger than his. Uh, Time and time again in history, larger, better, and superior armies lose. War is a gamble, and Jeroboam trusts in his own strength and thinks that he has weighted the dice in his favor. So Jeroboam sets his men. Abijah and the men of Judah now have a battle to to fight. Have you ever been surrounded? They They are utterly surrounded. Have you ever been in a situation, a moment, or a season where you didn't know what to do. You had no more ideas. You had no more strategies. You didn't know what to do. Well, you can pray. But you know that when you pray, at your bedside, the dining table, or living room, or even in the bathroom, when you pray, you are entering into a spiritual battlefield. Satan would love for you not to pray because he would love for you not to enter the battlefield and add your voice to the shouts of the saints that are going up. The Christian life is spiritual warfare. And you are to equip yourself, as uh, as Ephesians 6 says, with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. Your prayers are battle shouts. So Abijah and the men of Judah shout, and they enter the battle with trumpets of the priests blaring, crying out to God, the God of heaven and earth who keeps covenant forever. And God hears them. The Lord answers their prayers by causing the Israelites to experience utter dread and to flee. You can imagine if you're afraid of the dark. uh, If you ask me, Am I afraid of the dark? I would say no. If you say, Are you afraid of snakes? Resounding yes. Uh, I'm confident in my identity as one who is afraid of snakes. Uh, But I wouldn't say I'm afraid of the dark. And yet I have felt. That feeling of being in the dark and things start looking like what they're not. Mops start looking like tentacles reaching out to you. And uh, in the bedroom, in the dark, if the closet door is open, it's darker than the darkness in the room. It's like an inner darkness. And it just, there's a sense of being pulled in there. It's like, I want to close the door, but I also don't want to get out of bed. Uh, So... That's how I feel about it. But uh, the men of Israel, I can imagine just this f- sense of being afraid of the dark is coming up. They're seeing things that aren't there. They're hearing things. They're, they're just afraid, and their knees are buckling, and they, they flee. And not only do they flee, but they're like the, the Midianites who flee before Gideon. And it's, it's a sad reality that the people of God, these Israelites, are being portrayed like the Midianites and the Canaanites and the enemies of God's people, as God is against them and causes this dread to come upon them. And the men of Judah raise the shout, and they pursue them, and they prevail, and they slaughter the Israelites, and they wipe out more Israelites than are even in the army of Judah. And so Israel is totally defeated, and it is the Lord's doing. Look at verse 18. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time. And the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. That's the summary of the battle. And when it relates to how do we look at Abijah, well, perhaps we could say a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. A bad king leads his army and wins for all the right reasons on this day. They relied on the God of their fathers. That phrase, the God of their fathers, is operative here as we're talking about the covenant and the whole account of Abijah's reign as he talked about his father and he talks about the God of his fathers. He talks about the house of David and God's faithfulness, to the house of David. This God of their fathers is, is the particular phrase. As Abijah's father did not set his son up well and he did not set him up with a united kingdom but a divided one. He did not set him up with gold but rather with bronze in the temple. Rehoboam had lost much and had not set an example that could be followed. What Abijah did learn from his father is this. The Lord was going to keep his promise and not let the kingdom be taken from the house of David. And so with that nugget of the gospel truth, Abijah took it to the bank. He faced his foe with the promise, with that promise, and that was his finest hour. And in depending and praying to the Lord for victory, he defies his own own reign, which is he was not wholly devoted to the Lord, and he actually ends up living up to his own name. His reign on the whole is is not devoted to the Lord, but his name means, his name, Abijah, Abiyah, it means, the Lord is my father. So he does not always live up to the meaning, but this day, his finest hour, is particularly fine because he does not live and pray and fight because he is on his own strength, but he lives and prays and fights on this day like the Lord is his father. As an earthly king, he has his shortcomings and his faults, but this points to Christ, the king. And so he points us to Jesus, who could truly say, the Lord is my Father. So why is God the God who keeps covenant forever? Because of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who comes and lives under the law, humbles himself, suffers, and is crucified. He dies and is buried. He fulfilled the law. We could not. He fulfills the covenant of works covenant of works says, do this and live. We couldn't do it, so we die. But Jesus could, so we live. He satisfied God's wrath and justice. He opens to us the benefits of the covenant of grace. As the Lord pours that out upon us, he, the Lord keeps His promises. He keeps them in Christ. And so He keeps His promises because He is being a Father to us and us being sons to Him. His only begotten Son had to suffer and die to make this possible. But through faith in Him, you can have all of these blessings. And you can even have a new name and a new identity. You can truly say, my name is the Lord is my Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are our Father, and You are our God, and You keep covenant forever. We praise you, O God, that you are merciful and you have made a way for us in Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Prince of peace. We pray, O Lord, that you would let not let our minds be darkened, but that we would be enlightened by the word of your truth and that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we would delight to be with your people and that we would shout for the blessed Jesus reigns and that we would put our trust in Him forever and ever. Amen.